Welcome back once again to the Resident Evil series here on the Main Quest podcast. It has been a very long time. And so if you are not familiar with these type of episodes, I am piecing together the storyline of the mainline canon Resident Evil games. At this point, I am eight games deep. And so there's plenty of stuff for you to catch up on if you are just joining us. I will not be discussing gameplay. I will not be discussing the music or any of the stuff that I would typically do in a regular episode. I kind of dwell on the making of the game, the development and stuff like that, and how it involves the the story of the games and, and the people who work on the games as well because they also have their own stories coming into this type of stuff um but yeah i mean this is this is mostly story strictly story and characters therefore of course spoilers 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 that's it that's your warning with that said if you did dive into the other episodes and are now here Fuck man, welcome back. <laughs> get, get ready. If if you like this series, you know, why not leave a rating or review or both? Uh, you can also shoot me a message on Instagram if you'd like. That is the main quest. It's the username. You can email me as well, mainquestpod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. And uh, I don't know, maybe send um send some suggestions of a new series for me to cover. Because I'd like to do something like this again, both with a different series. Uh, it's, I'm just, I guess I'm just not sure what I want to do yet. Uh, since we are literally on the eve of finishing Resident Evil. And so why don't we just dive in and kind of start wrapping this up, right? Our man Ward Sexton is no longer with us. Like, uh, not, <laughs> I don't know if he's dead. His voice isn't here. I don't know if he's dead or not. I actually, I don't, I don't have that info. I just, I, just, I didn't mean it to come out that way. <laughs> but hey, I, I hope he's well and living a warm, cozy life in the mountains of Colorado or something. So fuck it. I'm going to do it myself here. Resident Evil 7. After the release of Resident Evil 6, the franchise was in trouble. People were fatigued. They, they were fatigued by that game's, you know, all, all the genres that Resident Evil 6 attempted to emulate. 
you know, the cover shooters, uh, running gun, stealth, muso, flight simulators. Uh, yeah, that's fair. The jet portion, helicopters. But fans, you know, fans of the series basically just threw up their hands and assumed Capcom was just going to keep pushing the series in more of a, a blockbuster, action-focused style of game. You know, as much as I hate that game, as much as I have shit on it for how messy that story is, uh, you know, I, I want to reiterate that Resident Evil 6 came out of the gate with incredibly strong sales, selling around 4 million copies in the last few months. In the first few months, pardon me. But after the reviews and response uh, from the fans, it pretty much just killed any momentum that that game had. And I think Capcom heard that. The plan was to actually keep making zombies blow up and have the explosions have explosions and bullets fire bullets out of bullets. <laughs> Resident Evil 7 started as something much different than what I'm going to be talking about here because production on it started shortly after Resident Evil 6 was released in 2012. But after, you know, the absolute nuke of reception basically caused the dev team to scrap that version of the game in 2013. The CEO of Capcom also took notice of how much of a, a crater the franchise was and it's not even, you know, it's not even Resident Evil by itself. Capcom wasn't doing too well with their, their other franchises either. Uh, Asura's Wrath, Marvel vs. Capcom 3, uh, I, I think it was MC3 Ultimate uh, to be specific. Street Fighter, Cross Tekken, <laughs> Dragon's Dogma, and uh, there are plenty of other one-off games that were receiving like middling to like very poor reviews. But some of those games didn't even leave Japan. Like there were uh, a couple Monster Hunter games that didn't even come over here. The company had basically been coasting off Street Fighter 4 and Resident Evil 5 money. So as Kenzo Sujimoto decided to take the reins, he wanted to make sure that the next Resident Evil was to be made not by 600 people, not by... 300, not by 100, not by 50, not by 20, but 10 people. The mainline game was going to be made by the smallest group since Resident Evil. Now, of course, as things go, the game would kind of get outsourced between uh, different teams uh, eventually when it comes to like the, the game's visual designs and the music and the mocap. But the core development team was only 10 people, which is a, a drastic, drastic change from what most AAA companies would do with their, their flagship franchises. Like, this is, this is an indie team, basically, making this game. It's like if, um, it's like if, a, if a Marvel movie had only four characters in it and only two settings in which the movie was shot. Which technically, now that I think about it, those movies are just shot in one place. Which is, it's just a soundstage with a blue screen on it. But you, you get the point. The team was led by director Koshi Nakanishi, producer Masachika Kawada, and writer Richard Percy. Richard Percy. That is the most American-ass name 
on this Japanese dev team? It is because he is, and he is actually the first uh, American to ever write for a Resident Evil game. And, you know, this is kind of what stands out the most in this game. It's it's all over it, since uh, he previously worked on uh, the game Fear, which also had a creepy little J-horror girl antagonist. So right away, the team began stripping back everything that the, the past three games had been known for. There's no multiplayer, uh, no heavy action scenes, no more uh, expansive locations, no more ammo caches, no more zombies. They wanted to go back to what made the first few games so fucking scary. They wanted to focus on just one location as the setting and absolutely drench the place in atmosphere. So just something like, you know, something like the Spencer Mansion or the Raccoon City Police Department. They wanted the setting to be just as much as a character as the people living or dying within it. Now I went down a rabbit hole kind of learning about the development of, of this game. And there's a lot to pick apart here because the team was so intimate. And granted that this game was made around 2016, 2017 with, you know, modern day press and social media and stuff like that. A lot of stuff is out there. Uh, I really went down a rabbit hole here, but um, ultimately the devs decided that it would be best for the first time in the series to change the perspective of the player's point of view it would not be the third person fixed perspectives or even the the over the shoulder camera that the series pioneered in 4 which obviously they went back to like 2 years later uh they decided for the first time ever to have it in first person. You, or we, us, we are now the character. You are now moving around the, the Baker family house. Moreover, PlayStation VR was becoming more and more accessible. It was an affordable device compared to its competitors, right? So Capcom decided to jump on that bandwagon and also develop the game to work in VR. And because of this, they actually had to rehaul the entire game's visual style because the graphics that they had started out with were just way too flat for what they had originally had. And I, I'll let you know, I do not have a PSVR, PSVR, and even if I did, I'm not sure I would even play this game because I am a fucking pussy. For real, like this game is already scary enough without VR. And so if I'm ever going to have a heart attack, I would rather have it be, you know, uh, come, uh, well, as naturally as it would come, uh, rather than having it be self-induced. And so the last thing I, I feel like I should really touch on here is this was the intro to the RE engine, the same one that was used in Resident Evil 2 and 3. And without getting too nerdy about this, you know, this engine not only helped the team build incredibly realistic and atmospheric locations, but it is and is still uh, incredibly groundbreaking for the ability to map photorealistic textures 
using actual data from real life objects and environments. But also, you know, if you don't care about that, it's already much easier to just work with, especially within Resident Evil 7's uh, linear gameplay structure. And so that's it. That the the stage is set. You know, the game came out in January of 2017, and at this point, I was entirely aware of its existence. This is also around the same time I actually heard about RE6's reputation and how Capcom has finally turned the ship around with 7, with most people even calling this game a, like a soft reboot, despite its connections with previous games. And if you want to get into the numbers, you know, this was released in January, and I don't mean to shit on Resident Evil 7, uh, but video games, like, as far as the industry goes in business, the video games industry doesn't really release their stuff in January. It's it's a dead month. It, most, you know, companies that do release their games, it's just to get them out. And then for the most part, they're, they're pretty much forgotten. But Resident Evil 7, it was the best selling game across the world in the first month of its release. I stated previously on Resident Evil 5 and probably on Resident Evil 6, uh, that 5 is the best selling game in the series with 6 right behind it. But as of this recording, August 2022, Resident Evil 7 has Taking, taking, <laughs> taken the number two spot, sitting just under 12 million copies sold. And with the recent re release of uh, the game for the PS5, the PS5 upgrade, it's a whole new generation of people that can experience this game. So, it's been a while since I've talked about what's happening with the T virus, the outbreak. The Weskers and the Redfields of the world. So before we talk about what happens in Louisiana, or Louisiana, I got to get my southern numbers up. Louisiana. I got to remember to pronounce it that way. Why don't we catch up with the story so far? I even begin to summarize the events of Resident Evil 6. You know what? I'm going to set a timer. I'm going to put two minutes on the clock, and if I run out of time, just go back to that episode. Because I couldn't even keep it straight, and I had two hours to figure that out. Fuck it, I think I, even, I split Resident Evil 6 into two different episodes. <laughs> That's how much shit there is in that game. All right. Two minutes on the clock. Time starts now. After the events of Resident Evil 5, we find now depressive alcoholic Chris Redfield sitting at a bar and getting in fights with the locals as he's finally hit rock bottom. He, he basically suffers from a great amount of PTSD, whether it's from the incident in Kajuju or otherwise. He's not doing too well. 
One of his officers, Pierce Nevins, finds him and stabs him out of his funk the only way he knows how. Picking him up by his bootstraps and shipping him overseas to Estonia. No better way to get over your P- your your PTSD from war and bat- battling zombies. The entirety of Resident Evil 6 spans an actual year from 2012 to 2013. During this time, the BSAA A, discovers a new virus on the black market in Estonia called the C-Virus, which has incredibly vague and arbitrary characteristics such as death, uh, reanimation as a zombie after death. The two aren't always synonymous with each other. Sometimes they people turn into giant bioweapons, or sometimes it just uses you as a host. It does everything. <laughs> Fucking everything. They finally did it. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., Leon and his newly blackmailed accomplice, Helena Harper, are on the trail of Derek Simmons, who is the head of an Illuminati-esque organization called The Family. Leon and Helena have both been framed for the recent death of the U.S. president and not, <clears throat> not only want to clear their name, but they want to get revenge. Because why not? Oh boy. Well, hey, <laughs> go listen to the episodes on Resident Evil 6. <laughs> because you know what? Even if I were to recap, try to attempt to recap everything that happens in that game, it doesn't matter. Forget it. Throw it out. Because it doesn't come back here. So the events of Resident Evil 7 take place only a year after Resident Evil 6. But for the first time, it is only very loosely connected with what's going on with the series so far. I briefly mentioned that people thought that this was a soft reboot. And it kind of is. It could absolutely stand on its own if it wasn't for some of the documents that you pick up. And, of course, the incredibly ham-fisted and bumbling ending, which it doesn't ruin the entire story for me. But really had me thinking, like, come on, guys. Come on. You were there. You were fucking. They stuck the landing. But then on their way off the mat, they fucking tripped. <laughs> like, who does that? This ending is the ending's not good. But for the first time in the series' history, I think this is probably one of the most serious and I'd hate to say it, but uh, probably one of the most grown-up intros that out of any of the games. And remember, I I played this immediately after I finished six. And you guys, the fucking whiplash I experienced was tremendous, man. <laughs> RE7 has the atmosphere of a small-scale indie horror movie. For the most part, until we start talking about our main guy here, uh, Ethan Winters, everything in this game is actually played off in a serious manner and is treated as such. And it all begins here with the, the intro to his wife, 
Mia Winters in the, in the first few minutes here is already kind of shows the, the direction Percy wants to take with the story. So from our perspective, of course, this is all first person. We are watching a video play on a laptop of Ethan's wife, Mia, who is voiced here by Katie O'Hagan. And she's informing us that she's out of town. She's babysitting for a relative, and uh, she basically just tells Ethan how much she misses him and that she'll be home real soon to see him. As the video ends, the camera pans out, pulls out a little, little bit as we see more of the laptop, and these blackened, bloody hands adjust the screen to kind of bring the camera into focus. And now we see the face of Mia again recording a new video, except this is just juxtaposed to the brightly lit, sweet, calming video that we just watched, because now Mia is incredibly panicked. She's got, you know, labored breathing. Uh, she very deliberately tells Ethan that he's right, that she has been lying to him. I miss you. Oh, I gotta get back to work. I love you, Ethan. I miss you so much. I'm sending tons of kisses. Bye, baby. Ethan. You were right. I did lie to you. I shouldn't have. All I can say is that if you get this, Stay away. We then jump cut to some incredibly beautiful tracking shots of Ethan driving through the bayous of Louisiana. He has, in fact, decided to go find his wife. And so as we get these gorgeous shots, we overhear a conversation he's having on the phone and learning that she's been gone for almost three years, firmly putting us in 2017, nearly 20 years after Raccoon City. And his search has brought him to the fictional town of Dolvey Parish, where he received uh, basically a, a, an archaic email from Mia saying that she was at the Baker Ranch. And from here on out, it's going to sound like I'm being really vague. But since this is all in first person, there aren't any cutscenes in this game like the previous ones. Everything is happening in real time. This is also an incredibly small cast, so there aren't any long bouts of dialogue or huge exposition dumps or anything like that. The game lets you flesh out as much of the story as you want, and knowing what I'm playing for, I spent way more time in the Baker home than I'm fucking comfortable with. Again, this game is fucking scary. But I have to admit, it was incredibly rewarding to stitch all these pieces of, of the story together, even right down to the bit of info that you find about the, the Baker house actually being constructed by George Trevor. Now, the Bakers themselves were actually an affluent family. The acreage that they live on consists of the mansion itself, 
smaller homes and barns as well as the salt mines that it sits upon. But the bakers aren't like the other billionaires that we've encountered in the series. They're humble, caring, they're charitable people. And yet, Jack and Marguerite, along with their son Lucas and daughter Zoe, have been vilified for murdering and eating well over a hundred men and women between 2014 and 2017. Even parts of the estate have been targeted by paranormal groups for their rumored hauntings, one of which we run into a little bit later. As for our new main protagonist, Ethan Winters, he is voiced by Todd Sully, who, despite the incredibly poorly written dialogue for Ethan, he does a pretty good job here. And maybe it's not fair for me to say the lines are poorly written uh, because we, you know, we don't really know anything about Ethan. To be honest, I think Capcom intentionally left Ethan an incredibly vague vanilla character as so, so it's like a stand in for us as it would just be more immersive as a player to be wandering around the Baker estate in this new gameplay perspective for the series. But honestly, man, the stuff that comes out of this dude's mouth, it, in many ways, Ethan is being way too logical for the situation that he's in. But at the same time, there are moments that are way too out of the realm of reality, and he's just too casual about what is happening at one point he's sitting tied he's tied up at the dinner table with the bakers who are clearly unhinged and they're, they're not okay and he's just like have you seen my wife <laughs> not even have you seen my wife <laughs> it's more like that this is this is also after he gets his hand cut off and it's mysteriously sewn back on and completely fine. Who are all you people? Where's Mia? You're not listening to me. There are crazy people in this house trying to fucking kill me. Do me a favor and stay dead. I just got done dealing with your mom and her fucking bugs. Honestly, I think Ethan might be dumber than Leon. And you know, if, if you've been following along... How dumb Leon is. What did you say? Insects' life doesn't compare to human lives. So that's basically our main players. And we're, we're going to come back to Mia in a little bit here. So let me talk about the Baker Estate just a little bit more, because if there's one thing that the last few games lacked, it was setting. There were just too many set changes, just too many locations. There was no time to really settle in at any of them. And the best thing about those first few games were the settings. And, and they were, again, more like characters. And the Baker Estate is that. When Ethan arrives, you can almost smell the hot, oppressive, humid summer air of Louisiana. The day is it's winding down as this you know, golden sun forces the shadows from the trees to stretch across 
you know, stagnant puddles of water that are breeding various flying insects that Ethan is swatting away as he makes his way up to the front gates of the estate. The sun now setting behind the house, making the facade of the house far more intimidating in the shadows. Now, of course, Ethan isn't just going to waltz into the front door and find Mia. The gates are, of course, locked. And so he goes around, trekking through the backwater, when he notices a man standing in the distance. And this man doesn't even take notice of Ethan and just casually goes on about their business and walks off screen. Ethan follows the man, hoping to maybe catch some information about Mia, uh, but he can't keep up and finds himself in front of the guest house. Once inside the guest house, this is basically when the horror sets in as the door locks behind him and the entire room goes pitch black. since my last sale. Why did I set up a merch table here? I don't even have any listeners in Raccoon City. I guess I should be thankful that guy in those really cool sunglasses let me use his house. Hey! Oh god, finally! Customers! I was beginning to think everyone in this house was dead or something. What is this? What are you doing in this place? Well, I'm just here selling main quest merchandise from redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash main quest pod what are you guys doing out here <laughs> you must be from the bravo team bravo team what no 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 i'm i'm just a i'm a podcaster i'm from the main just qu- a moment i found something what is it that uh that that's a uh resident evil series themed tote bag the house on that artwork looks suspiciously familiar but, um, yeah, I've also got pins, stickers, and themed phone cases that you can store in that thing just in case you run out of inventory slots. You saved my life. I owe you one. <laughs> hey, let's, uh, hey, let's not get dramatic, okay? You, you don't owe me anything. But if you do feel like supporting the show, all of the funds feed directly back into the podcast so I can keep putting out great content and even more designs. And the best thing about Redbubble is not only are they print-on-demand, but your quality merch will arrive in no time at all. He's insane! Whoa! Let me take care of this. And yeah, as you can see, there's even a selection of shirts for the beefiest of boys like Mr. Redfield over here. (laughs) Thank you. That site again is redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash mainquestpod or just visit the link in the show notes. Well, I guess I can pack it up for tonight, but how the hell am I going to get through these locked doors? Here's a lockpick. It might be handy if you, the master of unlocking, take it with you.
we or Ethan, again, we we are in his shoes. So it's hard not to say that we are the character. Uh, we walk into the into the kitchen, and unlike the Spencer Mansion, or the school, or various labs I've talked about, which are all they're pristine, but in an eerie way. This, you know, in contrast, is filled with dirt and grime, and it covers nearly every inch of the house, and miles, almost seemingly miles of dust particles fill the air as light pours through the slats of the boarded-up windows. The living space is something out of, you know, hoarders, but there's something much worse about this. The pots on the stove are filled with something. You know, upon opening the fridge, roaches and other insects come flying out. And the fridge itself is filled with something. It's far too dark. And the liquids, the, the bottles, containers, uh, the foods are far too old, moldy and deteriorated to tell if this stuff is animal Human, both. Honestly, the imagination can't even conjure up what this stuff laying around the house actually is. But it's cool. Ethan don't mind. He he's the least judgmental person on the planet. He just wants his wife back. There's even a leaky faucet that Ethan briefly takes care of if you care to do that. <laughs> he just does not. He's got one track mind, man. Good for him, though. And so as Ethan explores the, the, the house, uh, we find scattered newspapers, some of which allude to the people that the beggars have abducted. We even find pictures of the beggars themselves, which are, they're creepy given the setting that we find them in, but there's really nothing unusual about them. We do find a videotape, though. And this is where... One of the paranormal groups I talked about earlier comes in. Now, as someone who has been in multiple paranormal groups themselves, why do I have such a hard time saying paranormal? I'm a fucking podcaster. You would think I'd have this talking thing down by now. But as someone who has been in paranormal groups themselves, I'm not so sure the Sewer Gators is the best name for that type of group. But we were also located in the Midwest, so I guess it's whatever. It's got to be a regional thing. Uh, so the, the members of the Super Gators are Peter, Andre, and their cameraman, Clancy, whose shoes we are now in, since again, this is all first person. Just as Ethan has in the present, they entered through the guest house, almost following the same route as we have. The group is actually pretty passe and a, like a little overconfident for having just broken into a relatively large estate in the middle of the night that in their snooping, they actually lose track of Andre and have to switch from investigating the home to now finding their friend. So Peter comes across a hidden switch near the fireplace that opens up a really suspicious passage in the wall that has a ladder that extends to the basement of the cellar. Andre is sent down first into the abyss by himself, 
And as he turns the corner, he finds, well, now my, my notes are all messed up. I have Andre and then Andre. Uh, give me a second. Please, Leon, don't try to save me. If you don't try to save one life, you'll never save any. Okay, so I was kind of right. So Clancy is sent down the ladder. Actually, I was getting a little ahead of myself here. Clancy is sent down into the cellar alone. And as he turns the corner, he finds Andre standing in a corner, facing the wall, Blair Witch style. And there's no response coming from Andre. Clancy puts his hands on Andre's shoulder and he collapses backward onto Clancy. And the final images on the VHS tape are of the camera cutting as we see Andre's mutilated face. Now, the VHS tapes are basically the closest to cutscenes that we kind of get. But also, like, we are playing these out. We are still in the action, so to speak. They kind of are exposition dumps. And there are plenty of them to see out there. And I'm not going to touch on every one. Otherwise, this is probably going to be another two-part part episode. And I don't want to do that. So after seeing this, Ethan somehow is not the least bit perturbed. He makes his way into that secret passage where Andre's body surfaces from the flooded basement. Again, not bothered by this at all. Uh, Ethan just kind of scopes out the rest of the basement and he finds a lone locked cell and inside is his wife, Mia. That's it. Success, man. I, shit, game over. Thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time, with Resident Evil 8. Actually, it's it's not that simple. We we find Mia, and she is panicked, talking in circles and telling Ethan to basically get the fuck out before he gets caught. What do you mean? You contacted me. No, no, I wouldn't. Did I? Did anyone see you? Did he see you? Hey, who else is here? What the hell's going on? Daddy's coming. We need to go. Daddy? We need to go now! To add to the confusion, she doesn't seem to know how long she's been gone for, or why she's really even at the house in the first place, but she is refusing to leave with Ethan as she guides him back to the entrance of the house, only to find that the door to the basement has been boarded up. At this point, Mia's kind of slurring her words. Uh, she talks about becoming a family, and then she just kind of faints on the couch nearby. Now on the end table, it's a photograph of an old woman that reads E001 on the back. Ethan puts it down, he goes off, investigates the rest of the basement, which is filled with these creepy dolls that are like stored on the shelves nearby. Uh, there's a few others that are just kind of strewn about on the floor. Uh, but before we can actually get like a really good look at them, Mia is suddenly abducted by something or someone tearing through that boarded up wall. At this point, Ethan finds his way out of the basement and is left to explore this portion of the guest house until a knocking is heard. 
coming back from the basement that, that he just exited. Now, many people have drawn parallels to this game and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they aren't wrong. There are themes of family, cannibalism, abduction, mental illness, torture, but I think the most obvious one that nobody's really talking about, and I think it, it honestly is probably the most surface level comparison, is Evil Dead. Because including this moment as Ethan descends back down the basement stairs, out of the pitch black is a faint, labored, gurgling, breathing Mia as she slowly crawls her way up the stairs and suddenly jumps at Ethan and tries to stab him. Her face completely mutilated into, not mutilated, rather morphed into something that is almost demonic, as if the entire scene was an homage to Cheryl being trapped in that basement in, in Evil Dead. And similar to the Deadites, the rest of the Baker family are also sick with this mysterious, possessive entity. It's something that can't be explained. It's something that cannot be reasoned with. Whatever it is can abandon its host at will, which leaves Ethan all the more confused. It leaves us all the more confused. As one second, Mia is warning Ethan to leave, while the next second, she's jamming a fucking screwdriver through his hand. I can hear her. I can feel her clawing her way back inside of me. It's okay. It's okay. It's me. I know you didn't mean to hurt me. You shouldn't have done that! If that isn't enough hand trauma for you, <laughs> buckle up, man. Resident Evil 7 and 8 is all about the hand trauma, but during this encounter, Mia completely cuts off Ethan's hand with a chainsaw. This entire scene ends with Ethan embedding an axe into Mia's neck and leaving her to die. It's here when a phone rings down the hallway and we are introduced to Zoe. She's one of the bakers. She makes it pretty clear that she wants to help Ethan and tells him the only way out of the house is through the attic. And wouldn't you know, Mia is up there waiting for him. By now we have found a gun, so we are able to take her out. Sort of. I mean, when you think about it, she, after literally embedding an axe into her neck and shoulders i mean it did nothing so i mean what is a gun gonna do it's not really spoilers uh, but before we can even try and actually grasp just what the fuck is going on we meet dear old dad jack baker who promptly knocks ethan the fuck out welcome to the family son <laughs>
I already mentioned this part in passing earlier, but Ethan wakes up in the dining room of the main house tied to a chair with his hand reattached while Jack, Marguerite, Lucas, and Grandma fuss and feud over what looks like to be a corpse dinner. It's like something out of a... It's it's literally a cannibal corpse album cover. It's just there's entrails and brains scattered all over the table in front of us, and Jack even attempts to shove some of it down Ethan's throat. And this is where the gameplay kind of dives into something similar to what I've talked about before here, with the tyrants, uh, specifically Mr. X and Nemesis. And so after Ethan basically refuses to eat the, the food that the family is trying to feed him, uh, again, they, they're fussing and feuding over Ethan and how he's destroying the family. And again, they, they're really trying to hammer us over the head with the themes of family here. And so they basically scatter. They leave the table, uh, except for Grandma, who is... She's she's a vegetable. She's basically a vegetable. She, the, the only movement coming from her is her eyes as she follows Ethan around the room. Now, Grandma actually does pop up from time to time. Somebody is moving her. Sometimes she's in the corner of the hallway. Uh, sometimes you'll turn the corner and uh, she'll be like at, at like there's one spot where she's near the basement stairs on, on the landing. And I think the last time we see her is in her bedroom again who whoever's moving her i mean i i don't know she isn't a threat or anything like that it's just incredibly unsettling to walk around the house and she's just there and so i mentioned the tyrants before and so jack he's our tyrant stand-in as he mercilessly hunts ethan down through the house and even has a few encounters with him the first being the garage where we essentially learn that Whatever entity is possessing this family keeps bringing their corpses back to life. Because between Mia and Jack, I mean, again, we embed an axe into Mia. We shoot her to death. As far as Jack goes, we run him over with a car, impale him on a steel I-beam, we set him on fire, and then he even mocks us by grabbing our hand, our... our <laughs> our good hand, and shooting himself in the head through his mouth. And he comes back. And then we chop him in half later with a chainsaw. And he comes back. It's not until much, much later when, you know, like our tyrants, he becomes this unrecognizable, giant, grotesque monster. And we actually have to kill him through lethal injection, basically, uh, that we are finally done with him. Speaking of unrecognizable grotesque monsters, the Baker residence is covered in a black mold. There are hallways that are completely enveloped in it. And when we search the basement for the residence key uh, to get out of the house, we, we are locked in. There's nothing but mold down there. There are even bathtubs filled with it. Clearly, there have been other things going on at this house than just the serial murders. The victims of the Baker family have been experimented on. And they are still alive. And are appropriately dubbed the Molded. These 
very tall, reanimated corpses are covered in black tar-like biomatter with throbbing veins all over their body. And when you shoot them or when you punch them, the mold briefly moves aside and reveals the innards of the corpses beneath it. If it's not fucking terrifying enough, they also have the ability to regenerate though. It's very slowly. Uh, they are, these things are, as far as the gameplay goes, are incredibly difficult to take down. And in dark areas, especially the basement, which is also covered in the same substance that they are incredibly hard to see. Very difficult. So unlike many of the zombies that we have come to know, it's hard to empathize as their humanity, the molded, is completely gone. The only thing that reminds us that these things were once human is the list of the victims' names the bakers kept on a corkboard in the dining room. And then also the various newspaper clippings that are scattered around the house. Now I'm going to start to speed things up here because, again, not a lot is happening. Uh, and so I'm just going to cover the most important story beats here up to this point. So Ethan escapes the house with the help of Zoe, but Mia is still missing. This is where we find out that the bakers, as well as Mia, are contaminated, but there is a serum, 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 <laughs> in the old residence where the bakers used to live. The only catch is, one does not simply just find a serum. The ingredients are spread out through the estate. This, this is a video game, of course, and only one of them is found at the old house. Unfortunately for Ethan, Marguerite is roaming the old house, and when she finds Ethan, she throws him through the floor. As Ethan begins to take shots at her, uh, Marguerite has these cicadas or wasps. They're, I'm not sure, they're very large flying insects, and they're just crawling out of her mouth and attacking Ethan. After being shot a couple of times, she falls into the hole with Ethan, and at this point, it's pretty much safe to assume that she's dead as she just kind of turns into a puddle of blood. And so after this encounter, I believe this is when Ethan finds one of the ingredients for the serum, which is the arm of a dead child. He literally rips the arm right off the corpse of a dead child, which reads 002. On his way out, he notices the puddle of blood where Marguerite was laying is now gone, and there is a tunnel that has been formed in the side of the foundation that actually leads to the greenhouse. Inside is, of course, Marguerite, who is now horribly disfigured. I mean, she is fucking terrifying. Like she, Her face is deformed, her limbs have grown several feet, and she now towers over Ethan but her like torso has stayed the same size from her midsection through her womb to her butthole. It is torn wide open and from the gaping hole 
insects and maggots crawl all over the gray matter protruding from this massive sore. On top of this, she is now insanely fast, and because of her long limbs, she's now crawling all over the place like a spider. She's capable of grabbing Ethan from long distances, even breaking through the walls and floorboards to grab at him. Ethan does find a way to stop her, and when he does, she essentially turns into stone and collapses into ash. It's at this point Zoe has sort of set up a makeshift safe house for us on the property from an old trailer, and we haven't met her yet. She's only communicated to us through the landline, and this part is no different. Except this time, it is not Zoe on the other end of the phone. It is her older brother, Lucas, who has found both Zoe and Mia and taken them to the boathouse, along with the last part of the serum that Ethan needs. Hey, buddy! I thought you should know. I decided that Zoe needed a timeout. She and Mia are here with me. And they're keeping each other company. Just let them both go. What do you need them for? Nah, uh, uh, that's family business, Ethan, and not your concern, understand? <clears throat> now, if you want the head, feel free to come by any time and I'll give it to you. But only if you participate in a little, uh, activity I've put together just for you. Which, to be fair, I mean, the dude seems like he's got all his ducks in a row. Except for the fact that he <laughs> fucked up because he's a real he's a real exhibitionist because Ethan is forced to participate in a elaborate barn maze that was constructed by Lucas himself. It is, of course, also filled with molded. This whole thing ends with Lucas knocking Ethan out and locking him in a small apartment attached to the barn. Now, this entire part of the game uh, plays out like an escape room and is actually a pretty, it's, it's a neat little puzzle topped off with a really creepy clown that sits in the corner of the blackened apartment and, and just silently watches you. That's it. It does, it does nothing else. It just sits there and watches you solve the puzzle. What happens next is kind of a mystery, and I think this is the only part of the game and story where I was like, this is kind of lazy. Because once we escape the apartment and, and find the last part we need for the serum, we don't see or hear about Lucas ever again. And the thing is, we never actually see him face-to-face -face aside from the moment he knocks us out. The only interaction we actually have with him are through various CRTs that he has set up, which fucking by 2022 standards would go for a lot of money. And when Ethan reaches the boathouse and frees Mia and Zoe, he gives Zoe the ingredients and she just makes the serum off screen right there in the boathouse. How? She does the whole thing in like 20 seconds. And all of this, all of this stuff happens just so quickly. It's just not paced or written very well. It's a very weird spot in the game. And again, you know, no idea what happens to Lucas here. It's kind of like Billy. So you seem to know me. Kind of like 
kind of like our boy Billy back in Resident Evil Zero. He's just gone. And so this is where Jack returns. But this time he's incredibly mutated. Uh, he's unrecognizable. My first playthrough, you know, again, because of just how weird this part of the game is, I actually thought that this was Lucas, since we haven't heard from Jack because the last time we saw him, we actually chopped his entire body in half. But when I play through the game again, uh, he does have a dropped line about Ethan killing his wife, which would be referring to Marguerite. So I don't know. The first time I played through, it just kind of made more sense to me that it would be Lucas because we've just been dealing with Lucas for a long time. Anyway, Ethan tries to escape from Jack, but since Jack is now like a couple stories tall now, uh, it's basically impossible to get away from him. So in a moment of desperation, just as Jack is about to crush Ethan, he grabs one of the syringes filled with the serum and injects Jack, and similar to Marguerite, turns into what looks like stone, and crumbles to ash. Now with a boat to escape on, and only one vial of serum left, Ethan is left to decide who to save. His wife, Mia, the woman who left him three years ago under mysterious circumstances, under the guise of saying that she was babysitting, which is obvious lie now. There's more at play here that she really isn't even telling us uh, even as we are under duress, the violence that she has caused us, the pain, the trauma. Uh, so then we've got Zoe. Do we save Zoe? Yes, they have just met, but given the circumstances, Ethan hasn't had any reason not to trust Zoe. After all, the boat is ready to go. The serum is made. Now, I could tell you what happens when you save Zoe, because... That's who I saved on my first playthrough. And if I told you, it wouldn't even make sense. Because in fact, I was going to talk about that here. But to save time, and since I did play through the game again recently, and I did save Mia this time, I am just going to talk about the canon choice here, which is Mia. So at this point, we say farewell to Zoe, and presumably leave her to die. Much like Lucas... We're not going to hear from Zoe again. But with the serum in her veins now, Mia starts to tell Ethan the truth. When the boat is suddenly attacked by something from beneath the water, both of them are knocked out. And when we regain consciousness, we are now seeing things through Mia, Mia's eyes. We have changed perspectives once again. We are now controlling Mia as she wakes up on the shores of the bayous near a giant shipwrecked tanker at this point she's hearing voices from a child who keeps referring to her as mommy as mia walks to the tanker she finds ethan collapsed near it and uh, he's quickly covered by mold and carried off into the ship now as if this ship isn't creepy enough once inside mia starts hearing the voice of the little girl more often and even sees her running around the shadows of the ship mommy Are you remembering? What? What are you? <laughs> you said we could be a family. What are you talking about? 
you said. The little girl begins to chastise Mia for lying to her about being her mother and about starting a family. And it's in this moment, Mia is a little more confused than scared because she genuinely doesn't know what's going on, really. Now, again, through, throughout the game, there has been a theme of family. Obviously, the Bakers have been the stars of the show. But even more so is just how connected and close-knit they all are. They, they have been taking pictures, or there are uh, pictures, rather, of the family pre-infection scattered all over the house that, that we've been running into. And if it wasn't obvious enough, when you encounter the Bakers, they always seem to mention how Ethan is ruining their family and how Evie, they keep, they also keep mentioning this name, Evie. Uh, Evie is going to be incredibly upset if Ethan takes her mom away. And when they say mom, Mia is who they've been referencing the entire time. And Evie is the creepy child on the ship, is Mia's daughter. Sort of. <laughs> kind of. As we were told all the way at the beginning of the game, Mia isn't who she's made out to be. She has been keeping a secret from Ethan. She's actually a government agent working for some agency that has been developing several bioweapons which have failed after a rapid aging process that results in death. But Mia was assigned to be the handler of the first successful E-type bioweapon named Evelyn. The E-type bioweapon is not like the other bioweapons that were made by Umbrella. Instead, these are genetically modified children who are to be used covertly to eliminate enemies through mind control. Mia and her colleague, Alan were tasked with transporting Evelyn on the cargo ship to a facility in Central America. And at some point during their mission, this is when Mia sends that tender, heartwarming video to Ethan back home. And technically, she's not lying. She is basically babysitting. But as these kinds of things go in Resident Evil, Eveline escapes and becomes incredibly unstable. She kills everyone on the ship, including Alan, and turns them all into molded. Unfortunately for Mia, Evelyn has established a bond with her, believing her to be her mother. Through trying to save Alan from becoming a molded, Evelyn actually infects Mia as well, but spares her because of the bond that they now share. This is when Mia sends Ethan that second video that we see at the beginning of the game. And so now with everybody dead, the ship crashes ashore the Louisiana Bayou, adjacent to the Baker Estate. 
Jack went to the crash site and saw Mia, who had been ejected from the wreckage, and brought her back to the house. But before Mia could regain consciousness and warn Jack about Evelyn, he had already brought her back to the house as well, who then took over the minds of the entire family. Back in present day, Mia finds Ethan in the tanker's engine room, completely encased in mold. The perspective now switches to him, and we get a moment that I'm not exactly sure how it works. I don't know exactly... I don't know exactly how the mold works. So from what I've kind of put together, it seems the mold is a hive mind. It is all linked by Evelyn. So at this point, I'm pretty sure Ethan has to be infected with the mold as well, because at, at this moment, he is sharing a psychic link with Jack. But even still, it doesn't even really make sense because I'm not really sure how that works because Jack is dead. He was killed in the boathouse. Either way, the scene that plays out here is actually pretty heartbreaking because we get to talk to the real Jack. We have not talked to the real Jack the entire game. And, you know, he's he's this loving father who is just in complete despair over a fucking mistake that he made. Ethan, I'm not going to hurt you. Hell, I never would have if I could have helped you. What do you mean? I'm no killer, son. Neither is Marguerite, nor my boy Lucas. That girl, Evelyn, she did this. What the hell is she? Now, what did she do to you? I found her near busted out tank in the bayou. Everything changed after that. So she infects you and then she takes control? No. Not exactly, son. She just... She forces a way into your mind, your soul. You can't fight back. Oh, you're a, you're a different person after that. Just like Mia. So Mia sent me that message because of Evelyn. Listen, the girl just wants a family of her own. All right? You find her, and you stop her. Ethan. Free my family. All of the anguish and torture that Jack and Marguerite and Lucas have caused us, it's in this moment that you remember that their humanity was taken by force and none of the stuff that they even put us through even really matters anymore. And so we flash back to the present once again and Mia frees Ethan from his moldy cocoon. I just realized how weirdly it was a moldy cocoon. It, that's a weird thing to say. Um, and once he's free, she basically just shoves him out of the engine room and locks the door behind her because Evelyn is starting to take over Mia once again, or at least trying to. Ethan is told there is a serum that will kill Evelyn, located in a lab in the nearby salt mines. Not too much happens here. There's, I guess all you really need to know is that there's a radio tower near the salt mines in which Ethan hears a distress call that was sent out, and the military is headed to the Baker estate. But other than that, Ethan finds a serum, and... 
After Evelyn tries to kill him with an army of molded, he escapes through a tiny shaft that leads into a room filled with creepy dolls. And a familiar-looking wheelchair in the corner of the room. We're back in the basement of the Baker house. And still, on the end table near the couch, is the photograph of an old woman. It's Grandma. Which on the flip side of the picture reads, E-001. It's Evelyn. As Ethan makes his way through the house, he's now having the same hallucinations Mia had back on the ship. Except this time, Evelyn is making him relive his initial moments in the house, showing exactly when and where she was controlling Mia as she attacked him and cut off his hand. Ethan keeps retracing his steps from his fights with Mia, which leads him to the attic, of course, where he finds Evelyn and jabs her with the serum. snaps out of the hallucination and before us is the actual withered aged Evelyn that we have been seeing throughout the house and she melts into a pile of mold but then transforms into something that's actually pretty similar to what we saw with Carla Ada all that's left is this gigantic monstrous face with mold absolutely washing over the entire house, attempting to corner Ethan. Eventually, Evelyn and the mold grow so large, it literally bursts out of the roof and the sides of the house and sends Ethan flying out onto the lawn. Now, Evelyn is now a couple stories tall. She looks like a giant moldy worm with arms everywhere. She picks up Ethan several stories into the air as he desperately fires round after round into her face until she eventually drops him, somehow not knocking him out or breaking any bones. Like, he's a fucking... I guess at least we kept that aspect of Resident Evil 6, right? We're just superheroes now. But as he tries to get to his feet, a cache case drops to the ground and someone yells from a helicopter to use the gun, in which the camera pants the gun and has the name Albert One on the side of it. Just cute. Whatever this gun is, it's incredibly powerful, and just like the bakers before her, Evelyn turns into a gigantic marbleish statue and then eventually crumbles to ash. Before cutting to black... The rescue squad lands on the property, and a few soldiers make their way over to Ethan. One of them takes off their shielded helmet and says, I'm Redfield. I'm glad we found you. It's motherfucking Chris Redfield. 
Except it's not. I don't know who this imposter is, but it's not my Chris Redfield. The man is about 100 pounds lighter, has absolutely no muscle, looks about 20 years sober, which we know is a damn lie because we just saw him drink like a fucking mule uh, back in Estonia or whatever three years prior to this. It's not even the same voice actor. It's not even... um. It's not even Roger Craig Smith. It's not even the right voice actor. It's a different voice actor. What in the fuck, Capcom? What is this shit? This, that man has had a consistent character model for seven games. And now there's this. There's the, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. It's not my Chris Redfield. That's for fucking sure. When I saw this, I'm getting, I mean, I'm getting my feelings now, but when I first saw this, I was like, man. Listen, I can't deny I'm not committed to this franchise now. And then what occurs after this was another dagger to my heart because as the chopper lifts off and the camera pans from an aerial shot of of the now completely decimated Baker Estate to the inside of the chopper, well, first we see see that they've also rescued Mia. Uh, she's in bad shape, but she seems to be recovering, right? That's great. But the camera moves back outside the chopper, and as it turns to fly into the sunset, on the side of the vehicle it reads, Umbrella Corporation. As credits roll. So that's it. The eighth game in the series, but the seventh game by number? It's going to get even more confusing next time because there's a number, a subtitle, but nobody calls it by its number and the numbers are still off anyway. But we'll we'll get into that <laughs> the next episode. Was Resident Evil 7 scary? Yes. Yes, 100%. Absolutely. My girlfriend can attest to that. I was, she was over and I was playing a little bit of this and I was a complete bitch (laughs) about it. Um, you know, towards the end of the game, it isn't as bad. Mia is a total badass while she's on the wreck to tanker and, and the game switches to a bit, a little bit more action focused than the pure survival horror that had been up to then. But that's not to say that the tanker isn't dense with atmosphere, especially with Evelyn whispering throughout the area. And the sound design, I mean, it's up I mean it's up there with Resident Evil 2, which again, you know, came after this. Making that and, and three, of course, kind of like a great realization of what the RE engine can actually do. So yeah, man, I mean this is as far as a horror game goes, as far as the Resident Evil series goes, I pound for pound, I mean, there are scares everywhere. Sweaty palms and heavy, heavy fucking anxiety playing through most of this game. It was delightfully awful. 
But next time on the show, we are actually headed back to Eastern Europe. We're not going to take on the Los Illuminados or protect the president's daughter. Thank fucking God. But we are there to rescue a family member. It's the final game in the mainline series. We're fucking doing it, guys. Resident Evil 8 or Resident Evil Village or Resident Evil 8 Village. Whatever you want to call it, it's coming up. Thank you guys so much for listening. See you next time. Seven is really hard to say. That's no wonder everything's six, six, six. Six is a lot easier to say. Six. Seven. Too many, way too many consonants. Anyway.